Hey everybody, how's it going? This is Hub, and welcome back to another episode of Tighten Up the Defense, a podcast that would likely benefit from a tagline. As I believe I just mentioned, my name's Hub, and I hope you're having a fine whenever the heck it is you end up listening to this. Me? I'm doing okay. Corey recently sent me an article that I kind of can't stop thinking about. Maybe you've seen it. Apparently, there's a group of scientists who recently discovered that platypuses glow under black lights. And the article claims that scientists have no idea why they do that. Now, on its surface, this seems like a perfectly harmless animal fun fact. But after reading it, and by it, I mean the headline to the article. I obviously didn't click on the article and read the whole thing. What am I, made of attention span? Anyway, two thoughts occurred to me. The first thought is, hey, aren't black lights the same thing as those ultraviolet lights they use in those creepy videos to show how filthy and disgusting hotel rooms are? And my second thought, which is related to the first one, is maybe one of those scientists knows exactly why those platypuses are glowing under the black light. Yeah, I am suggesting that one of the scientists really likes masturbating on platypuses, and then when the evidence of it shows up under UV light, he goes, totally inexplicable! And for some reason, the other scientists are giving him a free pass. This is setting a very dangerous precedent. So, if you are listening, scientist who won't stop masturbating on platypuses, please stop masturbating on platypuses. It is now more important than ever that people be able to trust and believe scientists. So, your lies about masturbating on platypuses are jeopardizing the entire planet. Also, what do you think the odds are that it's the same scientist who discovered castorium, the substance extracted from beavers' butthole glands that makes things taste like vanilla and strawberries? If it's not the same guy, I bet they're at least pen pals. In summation, scientists who study web-footed mammals are nasty. And now, without any further ado, let's, uh, do this. Today's synopsis rhyme was submitted by Eric Engelhard. Aragorn soars so his hooves are clopless. Hub unbores me with this synopsis. Synopsis. Thanks, Eric. New Teen Titans, Volume 2, Number 30, April 1987. Revolution. Written by Marv Wolfman and Paul Levitz. Trotted by Eduardo Barreto. Inked by Romeo Tangal. Lettered by Augustin Moss. Colored by Adrienne Roy. And edited by Marv Wolfman and Mike Gold. Teen Titan Roll Call. Wonder Girl. Starfire. Cyborg. Beast Boy. Jericho. The Flash. The Wally West one. Robin, the Jason Todd one, and Magenta, 
who should really be named Magneta. Roll call of Teen Titans who are on the wrong side for at least part of the issue. Nightwing, Raven, Zack Wingman, non-teen titan superhero guest stars, Batman, Booster Gold, Green Lantern, the Jon Stewart one, Green Lantern, the Cap Matui one, Skyman, Dr. Midnight, the one who spells her name right, and Superman. Previously in New Teen Titans. Supposedly surprisingly spry Septicentenarian, but secretly 7th generation single centenarian evil cult leader Brother Blood had been laying low ever since faking his own death an indeterminate amount of comic book time ago. Despite its leader's alleged unaliveness, the Church of Blood was anything but inactive. Under the leadership of the cult's matriarchal majordomo Mother Mayhem, who was pregnant with Brother Blood's child, the strangely sanguinary sect kidnapped and brainwashed a number of former Teen Titans and their allies. That number was three. First, Mother Mayhem approached the amnesiac alien angel Zack Wingman. She told the forgetful flyboy that he was a literal angel from heaven named Azrael, and that only the Church of Blood understood what a special boy he was. After that, the Titan's flattery-susceptible feathered frenemy was putty in her hands. Next, the church kidnapped a recently resurrected Raven and her mother, Arella. Nightwing attempted to rescue his Azerathian allies, but after infiltrating the evil ecclesiastical organization, the acrobat adventurer was dismayed to find that Raven had already been brought into the fold. The avian-themed empath used her powers on her would-be liberator, and working with the Church of Blood's chief torturer, an elaborately hatted asshole named the Confessor, converted Nightwing into another devoted acolyte of Brother Blood. With its roster of acolytes replete with erstwhile adolescent enemies, the Church of Blood began advertising that its purportedly perished perfidious pontiff would soon be resurrected in an internationally televised ceremony. The rest of the Titans were alarmed to see Nightwing and Raven speaking in support of the sinister sect. Unwilling to leave a teammate who wasn't Aqualad in the clutches of a madman, the gang leapt into action and rushed off to interrupt the scheduled resurrection. Worried that they might be short-staffed for a battle with Blood and his followers, the young heroes called in reserve members, The Flash, aka Wally West, and Robin, aka Jason Todd. Wally figured that his girlfriend Frances Kane's magnet powers might come in handy and asked her to join them, but as Fran had repeatedly told the young Wizard of Wiz, she hated using her powers and specifically never wanted to do any superhero stuff. So Wally bought her a new superhero outfit. Damn it, Wally! Surprisingly, this thoughtless, self-serving gesture did not change Fran's mind. But fortunately, Beast Boy's old buddy Robot Man swung by for no particular reason and decided to tag along. The heroes headed to the Church of Blood's Washington, D.C. location, where the realivening of Brother Blood was to take place. When the cobbled-together cadre of crime fighters arrived, they found that the performance was already underway. The resurrection ceremony was an elaborate mixture of showmanship, technology, and media manipulation which involved satellite-projected holograms, drugged incense, and super-power-assisted sleight of hand. The Titans snuck in through a service entrance and made their way through the backstage area towards the stage, but their attempt to interfere with Blood's big moment was neither unnoticed nor unanticipated. From the building's high-tech control room, Mother Mayhem ordered the Confessor to lead a group of acolytes to intercept the interlopers. A few moments later, the heroes kicked the shit out of the Confessor and his goons. Hooray! 
But then the Confessor dragged out Raven's mom, Morella, and told the Titans that unless they backed off, he would murder the abducted Azerathian. The Titans didn't back off, so the Confessor murdered Arella, then ran away. Oh shit! Only it turned out she wasn't dead. Hooray! But she wasn't far off, and only Raven's powers could heal the mostly murdered mom. Robin stayed behind to tend to Arella's wounds as best he could while the rest of the gang continued on to Kool-Aid man their way into the main amphitheater and confront a newly resurrected and fully powered up Brother Blood. Blood kicked the shit out of the Titans on national television. Then he got bored, so Raven kicked the shit out of the Titans on national television. Robot Man jumped in and bore the brunt of the attack, so Brother Blood exploded him and tore his head off. Oh shit! Nightwing seemed conflicted about his automaton amigo's apparent assassination, but when pressed by the media in attendance, the cognitively compromised crime fighter told the press that Brother Blood had done nothing wrong, and that the self-styled murderous messiah should probably go ahead and murder the rest of the Titans. Oh shit! Back at the Titan Tower, Fran had been watching events unfold on TV and could finally take no more. Reluctantly, she put on the spandex outfit that Wally had thoughtlessly bought her and began flipping through the Titan Super Rolodex to see which heroes might be available to help her rescue Wally and his pals. Soon thereafter, in the Tower's conference room, a group of heroes assembled. Batman, Booster Gold, Jon Stewart, Cat Matui, Skyman, Dr. Midnight, and Frances Kane, who was now calling herself Magenta, prepared themselves for an all-out assault on the Church of Blood. Gadzooks! Is Robot Man really dead? Now that this some star squadron of superheroes has been assembled, what action will they take? And seeing as Superman appears in this upcoming issue, but wasn't part of the group that showed up at the end of the last issue, where did Superman come from? Stay tuned to find out. Okay, so... Dunno, it doesn't come up. Mostly they get distracted and wander off. And Krypton. Superman comes from Krypton. I thought everybody knew that. Brother Blood stands triumphant over the prone bodies of the defeated heroes as the crowd of followers who has just witnessed his apparent resurrection applauds wildly. The spectacle he and his followers had planned has gone off without a hitch, and he is super stoked about it. Back in the control room, Blood's technical crew is using their nonsense technology to monitor and channel the emotions of the crowd, and I guess everybody is just wild about his robot murder and teen pummeling, because they can't get enough of this guy. I'm tempted to chalk up this reaction to the drugged incense that Blood's minions were pumping through the venue, but turns out that most of the people watching at home on TV have also come around to the church's way of thinking and are ready to accept this blood-licking creep as their personal savior. The snake-skull-hatted scumbag gives a little speech about how if everyone watching could just let him run the world, then everything would be great. He wants the next hundred years to be known as the Century of Blood. A whole century, huh? I guess that's a pretty long time. I mean, Will Smith gets a whole millennium, but a century is, you know, fine. Maybe on a certain level, this speech is an acknowledgement on Blood's part that his plan for world domination is, at best, one-tenth as good as parents just don't understand. 
Seeing as he murdered his dad, it actually makes sense that he's a fan of that song. Cyborg is unimpressed by Blood's plans. He picks himself up and starts sassing the would-be world beater, then blasts him with his white noise cannon. Brother Blood is sent sprawling, and a bunch of recording equipment is destroyed, which seems like it's going to be a plot point, but isn't. Hooray! Then Brother Blood gets up and kicks the crap out of Cyborg. Bummer. But then Nightwing snaps out of it and intervenes, preventing the insidious cult leader from murdering his former teammate. Hooray! Then Mother Mayhem drugs Nightwing again, and he goes back to thinking that Brother Blood is rad. Bummer. Cyborg tries to get up again, but Raven steps in and uses her powers to put the mostly molybdenum marvel down for the count. Blood tells Raven that she did good, then starts hitting on her and kissing her hand and stuff. Gross. Mother Mayhem watches the father of her unborn child lavish this attention on a mesmerized teenage empath and isn't too stoked about it. Go figure. Around the world, new converts to the Church of Blood take to the streets and march on their respective countries' capitals, demanding that the leaders of their current governments abdicate in favor of the charismatic madman they have just seen try to murder some teenagers on TV. In Washington, D.C., futuristic tanks, which the Church of Blood had hidden on military bases around the area, are deployed to join with the marchers and add firepower to their demands for a regime change. Man, imagine people taken to the streets to demand that a self-aggrandizing madman who hadn't been elected should be president of the United States. <laughs> Sometimes these comics really strain your ability to suspend disbelief, huh? Meanwhile, Fran the hero she assembled at the end of the last issue, and, for some reason, Superman, are flying towards the Church of Blood to rescue the Teen Titans. Hooray! Then Superman sees the tanks rolling towards the White House and is like, Hey guys, let's go fight those guys instead. Fran, you could probably handle this Titan thing on your own, right? Okay, I'll take your tearful look of panic as a yes. Let's go, guys! Bye, Superman, Batman, Green Lanterns, Booster Gold, Skyman, and Dr. Midnight. Meanwhile, meanwhile, in the backstage area of the Church of Blood's DC location, Jason Todd hoists the nearly lifeless body of Arella into the rafters so that they can avoid the patrols of Blood's acolytes. From this lofty vantage point, he sees Raven, Zack Wingman, a re-brainwashed Nightwing, and the Confessor load the unconscious Titans into a holding cell. Once the prisoners are deposited, Zack hurries back to rejoin Brother Blood. Dick goes to join him, but the Confessor's like, Nuh-uh, your brainwashing seems a little shaky, so you're gonna have to stay locked up here with your buddies and probably get murdered with them pretty soon. Raven's a little bummed that her old pals are gonna be murdered. Not so bummed that she's gonna do anything about it, but still, a little bummed. She and the Confessor are about to head back to rejoin Zack and Brother Blood when Robin swoops down from the rafters, holding an unconscious Arella. He's like, Hey Raven, you know how you think Brother Blood is a neat guy? Well, here's a mostly murdered mom which would indicate otherwise. He ordered your good buddy the Confessor here to do this to her. Raven is all like, What? The Confessor is all like, Shut up, you little twerp! Stop saying true things! He starts zapping Robin with laser blasts, one of which connects and KOs the replacement Boy Wonder. Then, the Confessor turns his attention back to Raven and is like, Come on, let's leave your loser mom here to die. 
Brother Blood's probably going to lick blood off something cool, and I don't want to miss it. Raven is like, Actually, you know what? I don't think I'm brainwashed anymore. Then she uses her powers to make the Confessor super scared and run away. Hooray! Raven then turns her attention to her dying mom and heals her up. Unfortunately, before she gets the chance to spend any quality time with her convalescing mother, the avian-themed empath feels a psychic call from Brother Blood summoning her to his side. With a cry of anguish, she teleports to join him. So, maybe she's not all the way unbrainwashed after all? Hmm. From his stylish New York apartment, Terry Long watches events unfold on television and whines about the fact that he can't do anything to help his wife Wonder Girl. He poses dramatically and laments the fact that he's useless. Fair enough. Back in Washington, D.C., the imprisoned Titans are loaded onto a jet plane to be transported to the Church of Blood's home base in the Baltic, occasionally island, nation of Zandia, where murdering teenagers is less frowned upon. The plane takes off and begins its journey, but before it can get very far, it unexpectedly crashes into the ground, its hull crumpled in places as though crushed by an invisible giant. Which is weird, because the DCU has a bunch of invisible people, and even more giant people, but I don't think they have anybody who's both invisible and giant, which honestly seems like a missed opportunity. Anyway, it turns out that the plane crash is the handiwork of one Francis Kane, a.k.a. Magenta, which again really seems like it's a typo and should be Magneta. Regardless. Hooray! Fran proceeds to use her magnet powers to free the Titans from their shackles. Once liberated, the gang quickly trounces the acolytes who had imprisoned them. Robin isn't with the rest of the Titans, which is weird, because when Raven left, he was just starting to wake up from his laser-induced snooze, so either he just wandered away from the cell his teammates were being held captive in, or the guards left him there. Maybe Brother Blood decided that Jason's crimes weren't severe enough to warrant a death sentence. That's probably it. I mean, who would possibly want to see a nice kid like Jason Todd be murdered? The recently captive heroes leave Fran behind to tend to a KO'd Nightwing, who I guess the guards doped up real good before putting him on the plane, and rush back to the church to confront Brother Blood. Because that worked out so well for them last time. The Titans once again Kool-Aid man their way through the wall of the amphitheater. And Brother Blood once again kicks all of their asses. Yeah. The plasma-slurping cult leader is about to deliver the final blow to his helpless teenage adversaries when Raven teleports in. Blood turns to her and is like, Oh, cool. Good timing. How's about you go and murder all your former teammates for me? It'll be fun. A grim smile slowly spreads across Raven's face as she advances towards the prone titans. To be continued. Man. Someone really ought to have a chat with Will Smith about how his Willennium is going. I mean, there is definitely still time to turn this whole thing around, but the first 2% of it is a mixed bag at best. And joining us once again via the magic of telephonic communication is my good-for-many-things brother, Corey. Corey, how's it going? Hey, it's going all right. How are you? I'm doing really good, actually. 
been engaging in one of my favorite activities. We are redoing one of the rooms in the house to turn it into Lisa's office. And I can't remember if it's come up on this show before or not, but she did paint a circle in the corner of the room and it makes it look like a butt because the corner bisects the circle. So in what we are calling now the butt room is where we are moving all of our books. And so as you no doubt are aware, Oregon is now going into a more advanced lockdown. So it's kind of perfect timing for us to engage in pretty much my favorite activity, which is collating our books and reshelving them, which mm. is super fun. Oh, that sounds indeed satisfying. Is the butt like even? I'm having trouble visualizing like where it's bisected. Okay, it's right in the corner. So 50-50 pretty much? 50-50. Oh. You know, like a good butt. Like a yeah, bilateral symmetry is very important for calipigiousness. Ho ho ho. Look at you with your your $2 words there. What does that mean? I'd say having an attractive backside. Calipigiousness is having an attractive backside. I might be making that up. But... Oh, man. I'm learning new vocabulary that deals with good buttitude. What a wonderful way to start my weekend. Hey, this show is all about, well, it's mostly comics, but there is a big educational component. We've talked about that. Oh, absolutely. Speaking of which, that is one of the more challenging parts of organizing and collating your books hmm. is one adjusting for shelf size because that can really fuck up a good run you got going on if mm -hmm. then you get a big book that needs to go in the middle mm -hmm. but one of the more fun aspects of it is you have to debate because we did all of our nonfiction books first and so it leads you to like okay the wu-tang manual by rizza which i think is a book that you got me does that go with reference books does it go with music does it go with philosophy? So many different options. And uh, having these little debates is kind of fun. Wow, you went like full Powell's books on it. You got like a rose room and a green room and <laughs> all of that, but just on a shelf. Yeah, pretty much. Well, on, on several shelves. We've got like eight bookshelves that are in this room now. <laughs> wow, that's a lot of books. It is. We have a lot of books and our... Like, Lisa and I have very different organizational styles, too. Like, I had been very firmly in the camp of just A to Z, strict alphabetical by author for everything, no separating genre. And she was more of the camp of, these books remind me of the color yellow. And so <laughs> we're, we're compromising and we're breaking it down at least... The fiction books are going to be alphabetical by author, but for the rest, we're trying to find some, you know, common ground in terms of, like, what genre is what, and uh, it's been kind of fun. I'm almost speechless. I Like, how do you find common ground on what colors a certain book reminds you of? <laughs> it's very difficult, and the secret to a good marriage. Ah, fair enough. Well. Are you ready to talk about a comic book? Well, we keep putting it off, but that's <laughs> what we came here to do, so let's do it. All right, tough but fair. Corey, 
What did you think of this comic book? I enjoyed it, though it was more of the same, I guess, is the short way to say it. Yeah, I agree completely. I generally enjoyed it for what it was, but for the past two issues, it's been kind of refreshing that the pace of the storytelling has slowed down and it's focused more on a single story and a single event. But this is the third issue where it's focusing on the same story and the same event as the previous two issues. The one before it was called Resurrection, then one after that was Revelation, and now we have Revolution. And I understand, like, having a thematic symmetry there, but it really is starting to feel like it's all rehashing the same subject matter. I was really hoping... I'm, I can't remember if this came up on the show previously, that this would be the training montage issue. Because <laughs> you got to have one of those before the big fight, right? Yeah, I think maybe that's why they're not doing as well in these fights. I think this is three issues in a row, maybe, that they've lost a big fight to Brother Blood. I think they mm-hmm. lose two big fights to Brother Blood in this issue, and at least one in the previous issue, maybe two in the previous issue as well. Yeah, they need a training montage. It's the mm-hmm. 80s. There's no excuse for that omission. Got to tie on some headbands and those, uh, uh, what are those things called that, that like tennis players put on their wrists to catch the sweat? Wristbands? Wristbands and headbands. Yeah. Maybe some cut some shirts low or high. Yeah, I think you got to go high. Get the uh, Rocky Three training montage. Mm-hmm. Belly buttons got to breathe yeah you've got a frolic in the ocean Mm -hmm. important part of any training montage is frolicking in the ocean with your trainer feel the quickening rest in peace sean connery yeah i mean it's like we they have learned nothing from rocky three or the highlander come on guys Mm. okay you know what i changed my mind i'm disappointed (laughs) i thought i liked it but Missed opportunity. Was Wolfman just too busy to care about a training montage? I think maybe that is the problem here, because we've talked a little bit about it in the past, but the creative process for making these past few comic books are Wolfman has a little chat with Barreto about generally what's going to happen in it, and then Barreto draws the whole thing, and then Paul Levitz comes in and fills in dialogue and caption bubbles with what he thinks the story is being told by the art. And I feel like somewhere in that game of telephone, maybe the training montage got missed. Could be. And I noticed in the credits, too, that this has Mike Gold as a consulting editor. So does that mean there's yet another cook in the kitchen, so to speak, who comes in at the end and tries to make it extra coherent? I don't get it. I think that is kind of the case. Yeah, Mike Gold came in as consulting editor, I think, four or five issues ago now. And it's pretty unclear exactly what his job is, other than he's kind of the editor, but Marv Wolfman's definitely still getting paid to be the editor. Mm -hmm. At this point in his writing career, Marv Wolfman was pretty famously suffering from some pretty severe writer's block. There was about, I think, a two-year period after he finished Crisis on Infinite Earths, which, working on a project of that scale, as he was doing so many other things, 
kind of broke his brain a little bit, and he had pretty severe writer's block for a while. And so I think that's another reason why you get kind of a rehashing of the same events in these past few issues. Like, it's a, I don't know exactly what I want to do next with these, so Paul, why don't you kind of take the wheel for a while, but don't make anything big happen because I don't know exactly where I'm going with it yet. And it is starting to have more of that feel to it. I wonder if this is what would be the kind of reverse of a flaming carrot situation. So instead of having read too many comics and <laughs> gone the hero route, like if you wrote too many, <laughs> do you become a supervillain? Maybe. I mean, I now definitely want to see what stuff Marv Wolfman's keeping in his utility belt. <laughs> but yeah, maybe he's just wearing uh, swim fins around all the time, too, now. Mm. Really no way of knowing. So we talked a little bit about a training montage maybe getting lost in a miscommunication between the creative forces that came up with this book. And I don't think that's the only miscommunication because we also see a really disappointing use of the ad hoc super team that was thrown together as the big reveal at the end of the last issue. They don't really end up doing anything in this. Well, they delegate a little bit. Yeah, I guess. It's a real skill, huh? <laughs> How do they delegate, Corey? Uh, they tell Francis Kane to go deal with it because they got to do other stuff. <laughs> yeah. So you see maybe where the Teen Titans picked up some of their prioritization skills because you see that their mentors in this one are also of the school of, hey, we were going to rescue a Teen Titan, but uh, eh, there's something else happening. So they'll probably be fine. Away! <laughs> Yeah, I guess Superman, like, looked across the pond and saw that the UN was under assault and was like, that is way more interesting. I'm out. <laughs> I mean, he's not wrong. But... Did, was that his vision that did that? He can see that far? Oh, yeah. Okay. He's got all kinds of... He's got uh, super... I, I want to say supervision, but he doesn't have any supervision. He's unsupervisable. <laughs> he is, but he has really, really good vision. Mm. And uh, I, I think it has probably come up before, but one of my favorite of his lesser used abilities, at least at this point in comics, is his ability of super ventriloquism. Oh, that is a good one. Yeah. Can you imagine? Oh, my God. That's one of his powers I covet. That is a really underrated superpower. I agree. I would actually read a comic book about a guy who was just a super ventriloquist. Oh, what would you call him? Mm. Ventriloquo is like a little too on the nose. Yeah, maybe go uh, go old school, have it be uh, like a Edgar Bergen man. <laughs> <laughs> I can't remember or... if we've ever talked about this before, but the fact that for a while radio ventriloquism was a big thing is still absolutely flabbergasting and hilarious to me. That's just, that was back when people had a lot more trust in the media. <laughs> I guess they must have. That's the only way it works, right? Maybe they were just new to the idea of storytelling and just were way more easily entertained. Mm. Just imagining a wooden dummy. Wow. 
What would you call a, a super ventriloquist? Uh, oh, maybe the dummy. Ooh. Man, that's a real switcheroo there. Mm-hmm. Would he dress like he was a ventriloquist dummy? I would say yeah, but no, because that's just too fucking creepy. Have you seen those things? Yes, they're absolutely horrifying. And I've seen at least two horror movies that that was the premise of. Oh, that is a cheap shot. Yeah, but I think when they came out, that was a newer concept, because they were older movies. It's up there with clowns and cymbal monkeys. Like, come on, you don't need to go there. Was the movie Monkey Shine actually about a cymbal monkey who killed people? Because judging from the cover, I assumed that it was, and that's why I always avoided it. Yeah, I, d I don't know. I just remember the book cover <laughs> and like seeing it like in an old box of books as a kid and just being like, well, I'm never going to sleep again. <laughs> yep. See, that would maybe be a point in favor of having the dummy dress like a ventriloquist dummy as he fought crime. Because, uh, like, that's Batman's whole premise. These villains are a cowardly and superstitious lot. You want to strike fear in their hearts? That's a pretty easy go-to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, all right, fuck it. He dresses like the dummy. All right. Speaking of super ventriloquists, though, you mentioned Superman being in this comic book. That's maybe another miscommunication between the creative teams or just them forgetting what had and hadn't happened in the previous issue, because he wasn't part of the team that showed up at the end of the last issue. Oh, shit. Okay, I was hoping you were going to clear that up. I, I just, usually when things like that happen, I just assume it's some sort of, I don't know, continuity fatigue or something from having read so many of these in a row. I also had to check to make sure that I hadn't misremembered, but no, he wasn't part of the team at the last issue that showed up. But in this one, he's just hanging out with them. Maybe he was moving really quick. Maybe there was a portal of some kind. Maybe he just saw a gang of superheroes flying around and used his supervision to uh, <laughs> zoom over and be like, hey, what are you guys up to? Gonna go rescue a Teen Titan? That sounds dumb. Don't do that. Also, you're not the boss of me. <laughs> Away! No supervision. No supervision for this supervision. Oh. Nah, that, I don't like that phrase because that makes it sound like that's what he would say if he was caught being a creepo and peeping on people. Oh. I think his supervision does need supervision. Mm-hmm. In addition to having the super team show up and then just be like, nah, never mind, we're leaving again. There are a few instances of the book flip-flopping what is going to be a relevant plot point. Because there's a scene fairly early on where Cyborg battles back against Brother Blood, says bull to him for the first time, because he comes mm -hmm. back and says it again, and uses his arm cannon white noise thing on Brother Blood. And the caption work sets it up that it destroys a bunch of the cameras and recording equipment. And I'm like, oh, okay, now nobody's going to be able to watch what's happening. But then a few pages later, you see that Blood is still being televised on tv and so it's like oh okay yeah there was a bunch of that kind of back and forth where i was like oh okay this is what's gonna happen now oh no that was just detail in a fight yeah like when they they load onto the plane they start heading back to zandia because even though blood is going to take over the united states 
he hasn't yet, and it'll take a while to change the laws to make murdering teens legal. And so it's like, oh, okay, so they're going back to Zandia, but then the plane comes back down, so it's not an issue that they're going to Zandia. And one of the weirder ones leads me to believe that maybe the techs who work for Brother Blood have either watched a lot of Star Trek or are very clever about lowering expectations. <laughs> because there's a scene in which they're using all of their high-tech love testers that they welded together or whatever, which are machines that can channel emotions. The system can't handle it. <laughs> yeah, and one of them says, like, yeah, the system can't handle any more of this emotions. And then the guy's supervisor is like, uh, make it so it can. And he's like, oh, okay. Yeah, now it can. So in that particular panel, I was going to save this for sartorially speaking, but I just have to bring it up now. Did your issue have a coloration problem on page three? Let me take a look. It's it's that exact one where, where the supervisor's like, hey, just figure this shit out. And the other guy's like, yeah, yeah, okay. Uh, I'm not seeing a coloration issue. Oh, that is a shame because in the copy that I have, Brother Blood is standing in the monitor with, like, kind of his legs spread and his arms over his head. Oh! Yeah! But it, it looks like he's, uh... He's nude! He's wearing a Zardoz! I was looking at the panel above that! And <laughs> I didn't think Zardoz. I just thought full-on, like, bondage costume. Well, yeah, it's Well, a... I guess that's kind of... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah! Oh, man! That is really funny. That's why I think that's why the guy is stammering like the tech is he's clicking these buttons. He's like, shit, how do I turn this off? <laughs> he is clicking the buttons very rapidly. He's like, y yes, brother. <laughs> <laughs> so maybe that is not a live feed. Maybe Cyborg did break the cameras and he was just looking up photos of bondage brother blood. Yeah. He's and he's like, oh, shit. Oh, shit. So he had like a little side project going on where's the little button that says my boss is over my shoulder <laughs> <laughs> yeah that is just the funniest thing like and it got me thinking where gosh probably throughout all of these costumes if you just take the skin tight suit and turn it flesh color but leave the other bits there is a lot of hilarity there potentially there really is yeah i'm surprised more villains don't make use of that and start doing their supervillain tailoring at the uh, figure skater costume shop. Right, yeah. Where they have the skin-colored suits that they're wearing that, you know, it's like, it's cold on the ice, but I want it to be titillating. Mm-hmm. And I don't want these sequins to move all around, so. <laughs> <laughs> Exactly. Yeah, I suspect that, yes, later down the line, a lot of these supervillains are going to be getting Brian Orser's hand-me-downs. Is that a figure skater? Yes, he won the silver medal behind Brian Boitano in the 1988 Games in Calgary. I don't know why I went with Brian Orser instead of the more popular Boitano. I think maybe I just felt bad for Brian Orser. Well, it's good, good that you know that and that he's been vindicated by you on this comic book podcast. I was talking with Lisa the other day, and I don't remember exactly how it came up, but that I know the name of at least one famous beach volleyball player, Karch Karai. Oh, that's a good name. Yeah, it's a good name, but it was just weird that it came up as a reference. And like I was like, oh, yeah, 
there was a point where I guess I watched a fair amount of beach volleyball. And there's oh. a famous beach volleyball player. I guess any sport's got its audience. That's true. I am now a little bit disappointed in myself that I can't name a famous badmintoner. Oh yeah, there's got to be at least one. I'm sure there are. But yeah, Karch Karai is a really good name. Mm -hmm. And a really good beach volleyball player. Man, I bet that's hard. I haven't tried that since I was a kid, but no. I remember thinking I hate this sport. Well, and it differs from regular volleyball in that it's a two-on-two -two competition, so more movement and you're running on sand. Uh, that doesn't sound fun at all to me. <laughs> I wonder if the popularity of that sport really did just come about from the movie Top Gun. It's possible. That was a big movie. It was a very, very popular movie. I haven't seen mm -hmm. it in a long time. Have you seen Top Gun in a while? No, it's been ages. Man, we really don't want to talk about this comic, do we? <laughs> Apparently not. <laughs> <laughs> well, there was one other very relevant thing that I wanted to bring up about this comic book, which I wanted to maybe get your thoughts on. And that was... <laughs> protest signs. Yes. We got some doozies. Did you have a favorite? I think Blood Power is pretty good. <laughs> yeah, that was my favorite as well. We see that with picketers outside of the White House who are, I guess, in favor of a coup. So last week, Lisa and I covered Prez, the teenage president, and I was like, oh, I, I thought this would be fun, and overall it was, but... uh little too close to home with some of the political issues with elections and racism and stuff. And then in this one, too, we do have, like, March on Washington and crazed madman trying to seize power. And I'm like, oh, hmm. this, this was probably a lot more fun in 86. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. But blood power, still a pretty damn good picket sign. Mm-hmm. Not bad. I also did like the futuristic tanks, which I guess are just strewn haphazardly around Washington waiting for their opportunity, and I guess maybe around the world, but those are some pretty cool-looking future tanks. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that really stretched my credulity. <laughs> I mean... Which part of it? Just the fact that the tanks were there, the fact that the people are scared of the tanks, and then... I guess the tanks wink at them or something, and they all suddenly realize en masse that the tanks are on their side. Yeah, they all just start chanting, you know, USA, USA, or, or blood, blood, blood. <laughs> right. Yeah, just the fact that he's got these weapons of war, like a lot of them hanging out in Washington, D.C., just like, I don't know, under a tarp. Yeah. Um, okay, here's what, here's what it is. He got a specialty tarp that was made out of sewn-together fedoras and trench coats. Oh. Okay. Impenetrable disguise. Yeah. Yep. You toss a couple of sunglasses on there, those tanks could be anybody. Mm-hmm. You can't... It just hurts to look at them. <laughs> exactly. Your mind just can't focus. It just slips off of them. Mm-hmm. When those previously incognito tanks do show up, it is a really weird scene, because you do see all of the protesters. There is the rumbling of the tanks, which is illustrated by just a series of capital R's, which covers all three of the panels that they appear on. 
and then they show up through them. And it was a scene that something about the way that those sound effects were handled, it really, really reminded me of similar like riot type scenes happening in The Dark Knight Returns, the comic book, not the the movie. And I think this might be the first comic we've covered where I don't think it's necessarily parallel evolution, but I think this comic likely was influenced by that. Mm -hmm. It's a cool looking series of panels. And I think maybe my favorite thing about it is that one person in the crowd, which is chanting for blood as they march alongside tanks, is flashing a peace sign. Yeah. Yeah, I'd, I guess that was more in the sense of like a V for victory, but. Or do you think it's like the one lone, like, dissenter in the crowd? I don't think he's a dissenter necessarily. I think he is on Team Brother Blood violently overthrowing the U.S. government. I just think he doesn't understand context necessarily and is just like, oh, I'm at a protest. Never been at one of these before. People throw out peace signs there. All right. Mm hmm. It's like the uh, the pro-Trump rallies that are playing Rage Against the Machine. Have you seen footage of those? <laughs> of course they are. Oh my god, no. I haven't. Yeah, there there was a, a popular viral video of, uh, yes, people decked out head-to-toe in uh, Trump regalia, moshing about as they play, uh, I think it's probably Bulls on Parade. Oh man. You dumb dummies. That's something. Yeah, and, you know, really no more incongruous than that guy holding up a peace sign as he is promoting tanks running over people. Yeah. Uh, yep. Yep. Was there anything else you wanted to talk about before we get into the minutiae? No, really, my notes were limited to the coloration error with the bondage costume and then on page seven that the sound effect smack for somebody's hand getting kissed like that kind of jumped out at me let me take a look at that yeah my notes are a little sparse this time mine too yeah yeah you're right he's brother blood is kissing raven's gloved hand or maybe she got some blood on it that he wants to lick off hmm that would have been more of a slurp yeah, that's true. I don't, I could see him, like, smacking his lips at the idea of nummy, nummy blood. Hmm. True. Well, now in my mind, he's more of a Pooh Bear-like character, only for blood instead of honey. Just a, just a <laughs> smackerel of blood. Um, no, oh. No, no, no. oh, he's gross. Yeah, that's, that's true. Also, uh, judging from that one coloration issue... Potentially has the same aversion to wearing pants that Pooh Bear mm -hmm. has. Yeah, and and that that smack sets off another potential storyline or potential nothing where Mother Mayhem, who is carrying Blood's child, gets super jealous. Yeah, which I get, but it is weird the extent to which even in this issue, she goes back and forth between like, Brother Blood doing that, I'll show them that they can't do that and then her still being very efficient in her job and following through with brother blood and doing shit for him to make him succeed and yeah raven flip-flops a couple of times in this issue between good and bad actually she mm -hmm. doesn't she just seems to switch over to team good but brother blood doesn't know it yet nightwing 
goes from Team Blood to Team Titan back to Team Blood, then maybe back to Team Titan? Yeah, he's having a rough go of it. I am annoyed by him, but also I feel bad for him. Yeah, and you know, thematically appropriate for an acrobat to flip-flop. <laughs> to edit in the rimshot noise there. I will try to remember, too. Well, uh, yeah, seeing as there isn't all that much plot to go over in this book, you ready to get into the minutiae? Let's do it. Okay, Rick, would you mind singing us in? We got minutia. It's not the biggest part, it's just minutia. Like Cory eating farts, we got minutia. Time to sweat the small stuff. Thanks, Rick. So, Cory, what do you feel like starting off with? Uh, I struggled with the uh, the timestamp in this one. I did too. I had to kind of go a little bit meta with it. What did you end up coming up with? I came up with the the family portrait on page eight, kind of subgenius, pipe smoking looking dad and super eighties mom. I had the exact same thing, and specifically noted that I think this page in this issue might be the last point in American history where you would see a guy smoking a pipe and assume that it had tobacco in it. (laughs) Yep, good point. But yeah, it it is a very Americana moment. And yeah, I I had the same thing. It is weird because it is a very like traditional family setting with We'll talk a little bit more about the sartorial aspects of it in general. But with the exception of the guy is wearing a popped collared shirt that is like way unbuttoned and he has no shirt on underneath it. It juxtaposes oddly with the image of like the traditional dad smoking a pipe while reading the newspaper. Yeah, I feel like they took a very 1950s theme and then just put super 80s clothes on it. Yeah. Which is kind of why I... I think that's a good call. The other one that I had, which is definitely cheating, is the back cover of the issue has an ad for the about to start Justice League International series, which at the time was just called Justice League for the first few issues. Then they changed it to Justice League International. But uh, yeah, it's weird thinking that that comic hadn't come out yet at the time this was published because... That comic was a big deal for me, the the 80s Justice League. Mm-hmm. I think adding international to the end of pretty much anything makes it sound pretty awesome, like more serious. Well, I think that's why Men in Black International was such a huge success. I see what you did there, and I don't appreciate it. <laughs> I'm sorry. It's okay. <laughs> Seeing as we did touch on it a little bit already, sartorially speaking, which elements of fashion in this issue did you find most worthy of note? I really like the protester dude's hat with the S on it. Is that a sporting thing? Okay, it kind of is. It looks a lot like the 80s and 90s Knicks logo, but the fact that it has an S on it leads me to believe one of a couple of different things, because I definitely noticed that hat, too, because it is a dope-looking hat. Do you just want to describe it for a second? Sure. It's It may or may not be a trucker hat, but it's a baseball-style hat. It's got kind of a square brim with cool little, like, 80s-looking lines on it for the stitching. It's a very bright blue color, and then there is a black 
kind of like rounded cornered upside down pyramid with a large orange s superimposed over it mm-hmm. yeah it's pretty similar to if it just said the word nicks Instead of the S, it would look a lot like uh, Nick's hats that I've seen from, I think, the early 90s, possibly dating back to the 80s there. But the S makes it not that. And so it made me think either it was the Nick's maybe trying to co-brand with Superman or like maybe it's like a knockoff Superman hat, like those Mm. Bart Simpson Air Jordan shirts you used to see sometimes. Or maybe it is like the off-branded Halloween store version of a Superman logo, where it's like, a splendid man. We can't use the red and the yellow and the blue. Uh, So, you know, we're going uh, blue and orange and black, but you get the idea. (laughs) Close enough. (laughs) He's using his splendid vision. (laughs) (laughs) And his splendid ventriloquism. Nice. Yeah, I I was confused and amused by that hat. Yeah, and also it is just, I would totally wear that hat. It's a very stylish looking hat and I like it a lot. Yeah, it was a good one. There is uh, potentially a raspberry beret (laughs) perched atop somebody's head on the following page. I think it's really more of like a a sixpence or is that what you call those hats? A little snap in the front? I always called them driving caps, but I I think there is a different name for them. Mm. What did you call them? Sixpence? Sixpence. That's, I had heard it called that before. By who? This kid named Josh I went to <laughs> high school with. I have never heard that before. I, I think it's charming, but like, it sounds very British. Just like, oh yeah, that's a, that's a hey penny cap. Well, that's a significantly more cost-effective choice than the sixpence. Well, well we don't all have sixpence to throw around. What, do you think I'm made of farthings over here? <laughs> And that's the <laughs> the extent of my old British money knowledge. Mine, too. We touched on it briefly, but the ultra-modern 80s mom outfit that is going on in the nuclear family photo, it's just a cool-looking outfit. The, the mom is wearing a black body stocking, kind of, but then with a fuchsia vest over it and a string of pearls. And it's a good outfit. I think it's important to point out, too, it it may be a mock turtleneck a little bit, or it's just slightly below, Mm -hmm. like somewhere between a regular shirt and a mock turtleneck, like a half mock. (laughs) Right. Which, I don't know if I ever saw one in the 80s, but when I saw that picture, I thought to myself, that looks very, very 80s. It totally does. Yeah, yeah. Not a full mock. Like, maybe it's laughing with the turtlenecks, not at them. (laughs) This is a three-quarter mock. Yeah. There's a ton of good bystander fashion, but to me, it mostly comes down to the S-hat and the fashion mom. Yep, I had those. I had Brother Blood and Bondage. Sure. And then, lastly, I had Irish Terry. <laughs> oh, yeah. He's, he matches the colors of the Irish flag. His skin is very white, his shirt is very green, and his hair is very orange. That is a very good call. And in those panels, he is freaking out about Donna, which makes sense. But he is doing it in a way that makes me very nervous. Because he's looking at the photo of them together, and he's saying, 
It can't be over already. It can't. Oh God, why don't I have the power to help you? Now, Corey, they're not going to give Terry superpowers, are they? They can't. No. That guy can't even write his own homework. He doesn't. He doesn't. Oh, that's how it happens, though, isn't it? That is how it Light, happens. Lightning's going to strike, or oh. he's going to fall into a closet or some shit, and then pop out powered. My only hope is that you often will see the alter ego ascribed the, the characteristic mild-mannered. You rarely see ill-mannered, which I think would be more descriptive of Terry. So hopefully he doesn't get powers. I would fucking hate that. If he does get superpowers, what do you think those superpowers will be? I think it's going to backfire and it'll be like one of his more str- his like a strong trait, like he's going to be like procrastinator man. <laughs> See, I would have agreed with you before we started recording, but now I think he will almost certainly turn into the dummy because he creeps me the (laughs) fuck out. He's going to be a creepy, procrastinating ventriloquist. (laughs) I'll drink a glass of water later. (laughs) I do not like him. No, he's a real piece of shit. Corey, which character in this book is the president of the drama club, who acts, or rather overacts, in the most dramatic manner in this issue? You know, initially I was I was going with Beast Boy because, or not Beast Boy, sorry, my notes are bad, with Brother Blood, because he has so many arm angles in such a short period of page time. Yeah, no, I know what you mean. It gives you the impression that he is just constantly, like, windmilling his arms up and down. Kind of like, do you remember that Mr. Show sketch about the mustard anise thing, where they have the uh, the Abraham Lincoln in the yellow and white suit pumping his arms up into the air? <laughs> nope, but I can see it in my mind's eye. Okay, well, you, I'll, I'll send you a clip of it, but... Like, yeah, he is just in super fast motion, just constantly pumping his his arms up and down into the air. Yeah, I, I get the impression that Brother Blood is doing that, but also, like, voguing kind of in between. Like, he's just striking pose after pose and different angles for the different cameras. Yeah. So due to that, he was my initial choice, but with the dramatic effect that Terry's scene ends with, with him basically on his knees, hands clasped in prayer, seen through a rainy window pane. <laughs> yeah. It's like, that's just too much. I mean, granted, he had help from the staging or the art, but it's too much, Terry. I agree. I came very close to giving it to Fran. For the most part, she's fairly subdued in this issue, certainly more so than in previous ones. But there is at least one panel in which she summons so many tears that they manage to form a pool through her costume. Mm. It's like when the uh, superhero team takes off. Yeah. Look at how many tears are coming all the way through her costume in that. That is just impressive. I'm worried she's going to get dehydrated. 
Yeah, because that's like her eye area is covered by hopefully some see-through stuff. So how do the tears know to come out there? Maybe it's got little like um, emergency pry holes. Oh, like that filled up and then she has to like uh, like push a little thing that's like a release valve. Like she's emptying the spit valve of a trumpet or something. Or like, you know how final windows have what they call weep holes at the bottom? Oh shit, don't tell Terry about those. <laughs> He'll be <laughs> pressing his face up against them all day. No, no, no. It's so the, you know, condensation can escape without screwing up the window. Okay. When it, so it doesn't freeze in there. So maybe her costume's got weep holes. Yeah, okay, so I, I think that probably makes sense. So I'm not going to give it to her because, as you pointed out, Brother Blood is just chewing the scenery in every panel that he appears in. He is just going full, over-the-top, 100% villain. The only thing I can really compare it to is Kelsey Grammer's performance in the film Money Plane, where, if you haven't seen that, he plays a character named Darius Grouch III, who informs his pro wrestler counterpart, the actor who appears opposite him is a pro wrestler named Edge, who he informs him in his introduction that his nickname is The Rumble, but nobody ever calls him that in the movie, and then they have to choose a code name and he chooses The Colonel. Hmm. It's a really fun movie. It's very, very bad. But Kelsey Grammer goes full, over-the-top, scenery-chewing villain. Really, really reminiscent of Brother Blood's performance in this. Ah, okay. So I'm giving it to Brother Blood. And you know what? Kelsey Grammer. Kelsey Grammer is the president of the drama clock. <laughs> Always. Corey, let's take this party to the Bozo. What instance of one character calling another character a bozo, either literally or metaphorically, do you want to talk about? Man, I, I don't know if I wasn't reading closely enough or, or what, but I only found one. And I don't feel like it was a very good one. Is it Cyborg? No, it's, it's Mother Mayhem in her fit of jealous rage referring to Raven as a monster from another world. Ooh. Which is... A pretty pointed remark. It certainly is. Yeah. I remember reading that too and thinking, oh, I guess she is from another world. It's weird because, like, her mom is from this world, but she was born on that other world. Okay. Huh. Good for her. And she, she's at least half monster. Right. On her dad's side. Aren't we all? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I think that's a really good one. I actually had something that Cyborg says to Brother Blood. Anybody listening to your crud is a fool, Blood. And I like that because it rhymes. Mm. And also, he says the word fool. It is a classic. Classic for a reason. It's like a nice navy peacoat. Yeah, never goes out of style. Exactly. And it insulates when wet. Yup. The word fool keeps me warm at night. If I'm ever out and I'm getting a little bit too chilly, I just start shouting the word fool, and I find that it it wicks away moisture. Mm -hmm. 
if, especially if you shake your fist. Oh, yeah, you gotta shake your fist. Do yourself a favor. Next time you're calling somebody a fool, shake your fist at them. I think you'll be glad you did. It's one of those great gesture and noise combinations, like flipping somebody off while you make a fart noise. Ooh. Just really elevates mm-hmm. the whole experience. Mm-hmm. What was your favorite panel? Oof, gosh, the art in here was, was really one of the highlights. I agree. I know we've said it a bunch, but Eduardo Barreto is a really, really great artist, and I feel like he doesn't get nearly enough credit or attention. I think part of that is because he follows up George Perez and then Jose Luis Garcia Lopez. But I think it's really, really impressive that there is not a significant drop-off in the quality of art after following those two. Yeah, big, big shoes to fill, Mm -hmm. for sure. So I had a couple choices. I really like the dynamic superheroes exploding into the viewer's face on page 25 that I called Bull Smash. I call it, in retrospect, maybe we shouldn't have painted that bullseye on the wall. Yeah, there's that too. It does look like they're smashing through a bullseye on the wall. Yeah, it's like if, you know, like at sporting events, they'll like have everybody burst through the big paper hoop when they make their introduction. It's like they made one of those out of masonry and the Titans Mm -hmm. are just smashing through it as they take the field. It's a really cool panel. Yep, that's like just a Kool-Aid man opportunity waiting to happen. Mm -hmm. It's just a wall that Need smashing. Indeed. So I, I really like that. I think that that one is my favorite. The other one that was in contention is at the beginning, and it's um, page two. I titled it, I Am The Way, and it's the multiple angles that we see Brother Blood gesticulating from. And, and it stops, like, the, the final one at the end, he's doing kind of like this, like, 90s hip-hop video thing where his hands are, like, super close to the camera. Like, he's probably down on one knee. Oh, totally. Yeah, that is overall just a really fun panel. And the whole page is kind of cut down the middle by two columns of sound effects of people chanting the word blood. And it's just, it's really cool looking. It's a really interesting page from just like a graphic design standpoint, too. Really well done. I think my favorite comes a few pages later. It's on page eight. And it is, again, one that is most, I think, notable from a graphic design standpoint. But it is a close-up of Brother Blood's face as he is surrounded by Kirby Crackle and shouting the word, Arise! And it just looks like a, like a logo you'd see on a t-shirt. It's really cool looking. It is really graphically arresting. I can't believe that none of that saliva is flying out of his mouth. It's just hanging out in there, and there's so much of it. There is an awful lot. Yeah, it is both stalag... Is there a name for... Okay, so stalagmites come up from the ground. Stalactites cling to the ceiling. What is it when they're still connected? Um, a pillar? Okay, yeah, I guess so. There's, I'm sure there's a geologist term for it. Okay, so, okay, it's a C because of ceiling, or G because of ground. Connected still starts with a C, so it can't be that. Um, 
what uh I think it has to just be called a stalaite because it's intact. <laughs> stalaite. <laughs> but it's those of spit. And it's, it, yeah, pretty intense. Uh, Wikipedia says when they connect, they form a column. Oh, well, okay. That's, that's not, that's, I like yours better. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, like, I don't, I don't want to, smirch geologists but uh that's a pretty pedestrian choice yeah yeah you could you had an opportunity to make up a whole new word yeah out of two really other cool like cool words right i mean knocked it out of the part with stalagmite and stalactite they're cool sounding words they have their own mnemonic device built into them and then you really drop the ball with stalaite I think if Stella Ait was a word, then uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger would have made a movie about geology by now. I was just going to say, yeah, that's you got to really say it with an Austrian flair. Yeah. Well, Corey, every issue of a Teen Titans comic has a Beast Boy, the worst of Teen Titans, and an Aqualad, the greatest of Teen Titans. In this issue, who was your Aqualad? Yeah, this one, I was happy to be able to choose Robin, not Nightwing, the actual Robin. I think he did a, a great job. I think you could argue he's responsible for getting Raven to turn around and stop being evil. Yeah, I think that's a fairly easy argument to make. I think that he likely is. Resulting in, hopefully, Arella getting saved. Mm-hmm. Definitely strong runner-up from Borgie for speaking truth to power multiple times. Specifically speaking the word bull. To power multiple times. Yep, gotta love that. But uh, yeah, I, I think I went with with Robin for you know actionable results like success. Hopefully, I had the same choice. I went with Robin. I had Cyborg has my backup backup in my first runner up to Aqualad in this. I actually had Fran. Uh, I thought she did a really good job like she calls in all of these reinforcements for help and then they're like all right let's go and then like before they get where they're going they're like uh never mind you you, you're on your own again and she brings down an aeroplane with her powers and busts it open and overcomes her fear and acts decisively and powerfully and rescues the teen titans i think she does a really great job i did give the slight nod to robin just because without any powers he managed to carry a dying woman around in the rafters without jostling her at all and ended up saving somebody's life. But uh, strong contention from Fran. Yeah, I agree. She did great. And and that kind of leads me to the Beast Boy category. Wally? Yeah. So I'm tempted, of course, to give it to Beast Boy as he's named for it. Sure. Or vice versa. He does growl at some shock troops, as a tiger, but other than that, he do- really doesn't do anything. But he doesn't creep on any women. That's true. The bar is so low that when he doesn't do that, <laughs> I'm like, oh, good job. Which is sad. Yes. But I, I went with Wally because he was super dismissive of uh, Fran's efforts. Not even dismissive, but it sounded like disapproving. Like he spent all of this time trying to convince her to be a superhero for him, going so far as to get her a costume that she doesn't want when she has explicitly stated she doesn't want to do any superhero shit. She 
goes above and beyond, puts on the outfit, and comes and rescues all of the Titans. And when he sees her, the first thing he says is, Fran, we'll talk about this later. It's like he's going to lecture her. He gives her the, got a minute? Which she definitely did not earn. Mm-hmm. Bad job, Wally. Yeah, as bullshit. As my backup, I did have Azriel for just continuing to be a total <laughs> little toady for Brother Blood. Zach Wingman is just not doing a great job in any of these issues. He's not. His intellect is, I feel, just very, very weak. It's true. I think just any sign of, you're a very special boy, and he's just like, Okay, I'm following you anywhere, no matter what you say. You want me to kill anybody? I'll kill some people. Yeah, where should I deposit these unconscious bodies? All right. Yep. Oh, my former friends? Yeah, I'll put them in that cell. I don't give a fuck. Boo. Raven, stop fucking around with your unconscious mom. Let's go see Brother Blood. He likes me. (laughs) I'm going to flap so good. (laughs) But yeah, he's not as bad as Wally. No. Wow, so we we have an accord on both Aqualad and Beast Boy. That's that's a rare occurrence. Yeah, we had the same Aqualad and Beast Boy. We had same picks for the timestamp. There's a lot of overlap in here. I think we're finally starting to cycle together. (laughs) All right. Well, Corey, I have but one final question I must put to you. Wapoot! In the year of our Lord, 1988, as we do go by the date of the reprints, and the month of our Lord, June, what was Aqualad probably up to, Corey Wapoot? I do want to answer that, but I, I got to start a little bit. It's going to seem off topic, but do you see that movie? I think it was called Sully, where Tom Hanks plays the pilot that lands the plane in the river. No. So it's based on, you know, the story of the, the uh, birds flew into the engine and everything. Yeah, I try to keep abreast of any news that birds are trying to murder us. Yeah, that's what I wanted to talk about today. <laughs> so the first bird strike was reported by Orville Wright back in 1905. And just in the U.S. alone, there's over 13,000 bird strikes annually. Against airplanes specifically or just against anyone? Airplanes, airplane engines. Like, that's a lot, if you think about it. It's pretty fucking scary. Okay, now that that's out of the way. So, Beaky and Aqualad had decided as a diversion to um, swim slash fly all the way to Japan. Okay. And they had been taking a a tour of the local breweries, both beer and and sake, and had, had quite a bit. And they had some time to kill before... They decided they were actually going to fly commercial back because Aqualad's like, oh man, I'm, I just need to take a nap and I'll bring some extra water so I don't get dehydrated. But uh, so they started just wandering around the airport and then made their way outside to where the planes are, are parked. And um, Aqualad kind of is like drunkenly, you know, leaning on Beaky and he's like, you see those planes? They kind of look like giant birds. And Beaky's like, oh my God. I have an idea. We are going to prank birds so bad. (laughs) And they went and they got a bucket of paint. (laughs) And they started painting giant eyeballs on the front of these airplanes. Oh. Making them look like ginormous birds. 
And uh, somehow, no, but no airport officials really noticed this, and planes went and they noticed a strange thing happening, which is that uh, bird strikes reduced by over 20% in Whoa. the following months. And as a result, uh, Nippon Airways uh, announced that they would be painting giant eyeballs on all of their airplanes to reduce bird strikes. That is delightful. You know, another benefit of having eyeballs painted on your airplanes probably cuts down on attacks from sky cougars. Um, what? Remember, we talked a little while ago about how Cougars. Cougar safety and eyeballs? Yeah, cougars don't like looking at people's eyeballs. That's why uh, hikers will sometimes put reflective things on the back of their hats so that they'll think that the person's facing them. Wait, shit. Okay, I always get this mixed up. So, are you? But you're not supposed to lock eyes with them if you encounter one? I think you're supposed to. We did talk about this. You're supposed to make some eye contact, but keep it fun and flirty. Don't lock oh, eyes with right. them. But also, yeah, well, don't avoid eye contact. Okay. Yeah, okay. to avoid cougar attacks, you need to keep fun, flirty levels of eye contact. Oh, man, I'm not going to do good at this. I do, I'm, I'm glad I don't have to, like, try dating anymore. <laughs> I don't I just, How much eye contact am I supposed to maintain? Uh, I don't want to... Uh, less than nine seconds, but more than three, I think, is... Okay, so, yeah, he's just looking at the ground, mumbling to himself. That's good. That's... Ooh! <laughs> One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. Oh, okay, go. Intriguing. Yeah. <laughs> well, that was one thing that Aqualad was probably up to. The other thing that Aqualad was up to was binge-watching some movies. Mm. The reason he ended up doing that was because he read in Consumer Reports that they called for a ban of samurais. What? Specifically, the Suzuki Samurai. Oh. Which he didn't realize was a vehicle. He thought that was a type of samurai. And so Aqualad thought to himself, well, if they ban samurais, can ninjas be far behind? Oh, no. So, while he still had the opportunity, he decided he was going to watch all of the Richard Harrison ninja movies that he could get his hands on. Richard Harrison was an actor who played ninjas in a lot of movies in the 80s, despite being a 53-year-old white dude. <laughs> so, to make sure that he didn't miss out on all of this fine ninja cinema that was released between 1984 and 1988, Aqualad watched Ninja Thunderbolt, Inferno Thunderbolt, City Ninja... <laughs> Majestic Thunderbolt, Ninja the Protector, Ninja Terminator, Ninja Champion, The Ninja Squad, Ninja Hunt, Ninja Dragon, Golden Ninja Warrior, Ninja Kill, Ninja Silent Assassin, Ninja Operation, Champion on Fire, Ninja Operation, License to Terminate, Ninja Commandments, Cobra vs. Ninja, Ninja Showdown, Ninja Power Force, Diamond Ninja Force, Ninja Operation Royal Warriors, The Power of Ninjutsu, <laughs> Ninja Strike Force, and I think that's it through 1988. Jeez, that's it? <laughs> yeah. Richard Harrison was having a slow year. Oh, man. These are movies in which the ninjas 
just in case you get mixed up, wear headbands that say ninja, right? Yes, absolutely. And wear bright fluorescent colors so that you don't miss seeing the ninjas. It was the 80s. It was indeed. Yes, specifically, I forget which of those movies. I think it was Ninja Strike Force, at least. The the ninja does wear a headband that says ninja on it. Good. Have you seen many of these movies? I don't think I've seen any of them, but I do remember a time in like pretty soon after the show kosugi movies became popular like the ninja outfit colors really exploded yeah and your options grew and then there was headbands and all this really cheesy not at all disguised gear yeah it it was the same period that i believe saw the initial boom of neon camouflage Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. also saw the thematically similar fluorescent ninja uniforms anyway after watching all of those films aqualad was like "Eh, if they gotta ban the ninja they'll ban the ninja (laughs) (laughs) and that is what aqualad was probably up to what a month Well, thank you so much for joining us, Corey. I had a really good time talking with you about this comic book. Some, but mostly other shit. Me too. And we'll be back next week to talk some Defenders. In the meantime, if you would like to get into touch with us, you can do so by reaching us at our P.O. Box at Tighten Up the Defense, P.O. Box 20311, Portland, Oregon, 97294. Or, as this is the future, we can be reached electronically at ttwasteland at gmail.com. If you would like to find us in some other aspects of the internets, you can probably do that. We're on various social media platforms and places where you might expect to see us and some that you might not. Just uh, type into your Bing search engine or Ask Jeeves, tighten up the defense, and if you spell it T-I-T-A-N, Well, you'll probably first get some uh, stuff about a certain Tennessee football team, but scroll past that and we'll be in there somewhere. We actually had a fan recently make us a GeoCities site. That's still a thing? I think it's a emulator. It's actually a NeoCities, but it looks like a GeoCities site. It is very, very remarkable. I'm a big fan. I'll send you a link to it. Nice. So yeah, we're we're up there on Netscape 2.0 or uh, wherever you find your internets. And if you can't find us there, well, there's one other place you can look, and that's inside your heart. We'll be there, practicing our super ventriloquism. So might sound like we're hanging out over in your liver, or in your pineal gland, but we're not. We're in your heart will always be there. If you would like to contribute to the show monetarily, you can do so by visiting us at patreon.com slash ttwasteland. If you do, you get access to a whole bunch of bonus material. There's the monthly podcast, What the Duck, a podcast most foul, but with a W because he's a duck. That's the full name of the show. That is a monthly Howard the Duck podcast that I co-host with my wife, Lisa, who you may have heard on last week's episode where she filled in for Corey. If you liked that and wanted to hear more of her, you can uh, kick us down a couple of bucks and check out the, I think, 24 or 25 
episodes of What the Duck that we have out so far, and there'll be a new one coming every month. We got off track a little bit with those, but I think that we are back on schedule. So, yeah, you can do that. There's also a ton of other exclusive content for our donors, but mostly donating is a really nice way for you to let us know that you appreciate the work we do and would like us to be able to continue doing it. If you can't donate monetarily or aren't in a position where you can do that, totally appreciate that. But there are other ways to support the show if you feel like it. Uh, You could leave us a review in a place where a review can be left. There are many places reviews can be left. Webster's defines review as a musical showcase. Whoa. (laughs) Isn't that a thing? Like the Will Rogers review? Sure. Or the New Zoo review? The Rhythm and Blues review, like the from the Blues Brothers. Yeah, so uh, why not write a musical extravaganza about us? That's a nice way to let us know that you're liking what we do and help people find us. Or if you don't feel like writing a full musical review, you can just leave us a five-star review on a place where you listen to podcasts. Just type in something like, tighten up the defense. They seem like they know what they're talking about, I guess. Five stars. I like it. Yeah. You know, simple to the point. Mm-hmm. Or leave us, a, if you want to take us down a peg, you could leave us a sarcastic five-star review. Just type in something like, oh, tighten up the defense is so great. Five stars. But really roll your eyes when you're typing it. That sure shut me up. Yep. Anyway, thanks so much for listening. And we'll talk to you soon. Until next time. Um. Arise. (laughs) Yeah. And. I got nothing, man. Um. Okay. Bye. Bye. And they knew it. asked you to come here is because I have a very important message for you. What is it? The sort of catastrophe has been stolen by the Black Ninja. What? My God, there'll be a lot of bloodshed.